like like activists burnt out mm. a lot of them have so many and i'm almost yeah. going in that direction if i don't like <laughs> you know but i'm practicing self-care now Good. because i've seen all of these activists um go through that you know so you can get sucked in yes and if you don't find a way to do self-care you just end up you know internalizing everything but mm -hmm. i've seen a lot of people back home like all the activists back home go through that you know so but there's that light there's light at the tunnel for me because i have my grandkids mm -hmm. to balance that and um you know and they're my they're my life they're my world and so wow. i get that peace when i get to see them It feels as though every episode of this season is building off of every other one. In August, Tink Tinker, who is a friend of our guest, spoke to us about the Euro-Christian origins of the climate crisis. In September, Leela Puyer from Earth Guardians spoke about the role of indigenous youth in climate activism. Last month, Logan Farmer performed a few selections from his album on climate anxiety, and this month's guest will speak to us on the climate crises, environmental racism, and the way it is manifesting in the Mountain West against indigenous people, and additionally how indigenous people are organizing against um, environmental racism and also a more holistic view of the land. In every iteration of this season-long journey, I ask one thing of you, our listeners, and those who are present with us in person. Listen to our guests with open, creative minds, and then be prepared in your own context, and our guests will talk to us about this later, to act accordingly. Not in the sense that one individual in particular bears the burden of fixing are deep climate-related challenges, but because when a critical mass of people, however small or large, work collectively, transformation is inevitable, not only socially, but for the land to which we belong as well. With that in mind, please give Shannon Francis, Elder and Executive Director of Spirit of the Sun, a warm Mal High Theology welcome. Shannon, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me. Um, what an honor to have you. Um, what a great conversation partner you've been in preparing for this interview. You have such wisdom and experience, and you bring a lot to liter this literal table tonight. So thank you very much. In preparation for this interview a few weeks ago, you said um, that your genetic memory is your degree. Mm -hmm. If you would, tell us a little bit more about that, that phrase, that your genetic memory is your degree. Well, my people, um, I come from 12 generations of ethnobotanists and seed keepers, and that's a lot of knowledge passed down 
Um, my grandpa, uh, Willard Sakaisa, was senior from Kikotsmovi, the village of Kikotsmovi in northeastern Arizona. Um, he was a knowledge holder, a composer of Hopi songs. He was initiated into the Snake Priest Society. He was a chairman, a tribal judge. Um, mm. He spent his whole life writing, recording, storytelling. People came from all over the world to um, tap into his knowledge. He tracked the weather, the seasons, insects. He has um, a lot of our genealogy that he, um, all he did was write. And so um, when he passed away, my mother um, accessed a lot of those files because no one else was doing anything with them. And so she started putting everything into a, another book for a genealogy. And so mm. through that, I was able to, I was very honored because she had asked me to help like do some of the transcribing from his, he would um, record in Hopi, and then she would translate that to English, and then she would record in English, and then I'd have to write everything down on paper. And um, so she's halfway through her book. It's been taking, this is like almost 15 years now. Wow. That she's writing this. And the stories that, from the 1600s, his stories of the Spaniards coming through, how life was, um, pen, other pandemics that happened, and um, life in the village, you know, life with our people, which was very harsh in uh, an area that rained maybe less than 10 inches a year. Wow. And so a lot of the stories were really sad. A lot of them were really inspiring, motivating, trying to grow food in the most or the worst drought-tolerant conditions ever. Um, but my people have succeeded. They've mastered growing corn, beans, squash, um, and being able to raise sheep, being able to um, live with that running water and electricity hmm. sometimes. And um, that land was given to us by the Creator. And when Creator gave us, like, laid out about a dozen ears of corn, we chose the smallest blue ear corn. And that was to represent, you know, um, humility, being humble, and uh, growing that corn in um, an area with, you know, the least amount of water. So we've mastered that. Um, wow. Growing food in that area is very different than growing food anywhere else because it's nothing but beach sand <laughs> and clay. Wow. So you don't get to fertilize, like, the entire area you put the seed in when you're planting and you put the fertilizer in with the seed that's it and you have to go really deep six to eight inches um, of planting and that has to reach the moisture deeper in the ground so um and our knowledge is to keep the songs and the stories alive and when we have our dances, our dances focus on bringing the three realms together, like the whole, like social dances, bringing the ancestors, the realm of the ancestors, the ones who have passed on, the present, which is the physical world, and then the unborn, so the future mm. generations. And so when we're dancing, like you've seen a lot of the dances at home, butterfly dance, buffalo dance, that's basically 
bringing those three realms together, praying for the pollinators, praying for the rain, praying for a good harvest. And uh, when you have at least one or two groups out there, if you have two groups, they're literally like trying to make it rain. They're, they're, it's, it's a competition. Like they're really trying to, to put all of their energy and prayers and their motivation into trying to make it rain, to bring the clouds and to honor, you know, um, our natural world. And so that if we do that, then we hold the world in balance. And, um, mm. <laughs> and it's been something that's been happening a very long time. So that genetic murmur goes all the way back to the time of our creation stories. And it lives in us. It lives in, in all of us. Half the stuff that I know, my mother didn't teach me. I didn't learn it on Google. Um, it's, coming, <laughs> it's coming to me. And everyone has a genetic memory. We all have things that have happened from our previous generations, and we carry that. We feel it. We can. We. It comes out in behaviors. It comes out in uh, deja vu. It comes out in dreams. And so, when we do this, you know, we're we we are knowledge holders. And a lot of people think that I don't. You know, I don't know who I am. But if they tap into their genetic memory and and meditate and put their hands in soil, we say that. When you have healthy soil, the microbes in the soil wake up our nervous system. And it's been scientifically proven um, that soil helps PTSD and anxiety. Wow. So when we do that, um, then things, like, just start waking you up. And even if you, like, I, the only thing I can compare it to is, like, the movie Avatar. So, hmm. you know, you're connecting yourself to your ancestors. You're connecting yourself to your, your genetic memory. So everything that I know doesn't come from a Western school. Mm -hmm. It comes from my people. And I, I don't have a college degree, so I was able to run two organizations simultaneously um, and thrive, you know, and help them thrive. Uh, Four Winds American Indian Council and now Spirit of the Sun. And, uh, and I've been very successful at it. And I can't do this without community, though, you know, but... Uh, what we're doing now is uh, paving the way to create healing memories, new healing memories for our, our young folks hmm. and trying to override the historical traumatic memories wow. with creating new memories. So you're, you're telling us you have a PhD in genetic memory. <laughs> I don't know that I have, like, for seeds and, and soil, um, a lot of this is walking um, walking this earth, trying to minimize my ecological footprint, trying mm. to minimize my carbon footprint, my clans. I didn't introduce myself at the beginning, but um, I'm Towering House clan born for red running into the water clan. My Hopi clans are Masao, Snake clan, Sand clan, and Bear clan. So on my mother's dad's side from Kikotsmovi is a bear clan, and they're caretakers of the people. Masao clan are caretakers of the earth. And so that's the first responsibilities before anything, before your family, before your jobs, before anything. So that's how my people have been existing, is wow. knowing the seasons, knowing the animals, you know, all these things, you know, mindfulness throughout uh, all the generations. On my mom's mom's side, which it, we're, when, we're, when we introduce ourselves, it's always the mother's side 
everything is tracked to the mother's side. Hmm. So for going back to however long. So the, the women own the land and we own the livestock because we're the life givers. And it's very contradicting to paternal society because we're matrilineal and matriarchal. Mm-hmm. So my mom's mom is from Cameron, Arizona, and she's Ke'ani. Um, that's one of the four original Navajo clans. And we're protectors of the, the white shell. Um, my dad's side is um, Nakai, which is people from the south also, and um, Zuni, and mm. um, uh, from Shiprock, uh, Biklabato area. And then my, mo- my dad's dad is from Rico, Colorado. So we have a mixture of, of different peoples too, mm-hmm. but um, enrolled in Navajo, which I don't like to say enrolled because it's another way of tracking us, uh, which is called yeah. the Certificate of Indian Blood. So, um, but the genetic memory that's rolled up from all yeah. of those generations. Um, my, grand- my grandpa was a seed keeper and he had many orchards and his, his responsibility was to feed the people. Wow. So it was a huge responsibility, but he did it, you know. And so all of our seeds, we have seeds that basically are uh, predate the um, GMO. So we have um, older seeds that um, provide a higher nutritional value and content, um, which is something that, you know, you can't find these days. So, yeah, so my genetic memory involves many... Um, families and generations of knowledge and so uh, I try and access that as much as I can and ask for guidance you know so it's like when I'm uh, in despair or I need help I just I pray I meditate too and I Mm. ask for guidance from my ancestors and when I'm talking when we say that we we breathe words to life that we speak from our heart and we're able to breathe those to life and so it does take practice but, you know, um, I think that I'm, I've come into uh, being a pre-elder with a lot of mindfulness and um, for my, my mentors, too. So mm-hmm. mentors here. So I wouldn't be who I am without my mentors and my family and community. And, and that, that's a perfect segue. If you would tell us kind of what um, a day in the life of Spirit of the Sun, the organization of which you're the executive director, looks like. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> so, so a day in the life of Spirit of the Sun. So I'm the executive director. That doesn't mean I sit behind the desk all day. <laughs> it means if I'm called upon for someone that needs food, PPE, um, clothes, um, I'm the 4112, uh, I have to get up and, and go. So I'm always on call. So sometimes I have to pick up a CSA bulk share from Boulder. Um, sometimes I have to deliver PPE to people who are quarantined. Um, and a lot of it is coordinating. And when I have time, then I can focus on the operations. You know, so I'm, I'm doing everything. I'm the only staff right now. Wow. We have a VISTA AmeriCorps program, which is a, a capacity building arm. And we have 21 slots in three different states. Over the summer, we had 90 summer associate VISTAs that I was managing in three states, and I don't get paid a dime for that. It's all volunteer. Mm -hmm. So I rely on my team. We're an all-woman-led team. And so we interview 
rigorously to make sure that we have the right folks in place and that we're fulfilling, you know, it's a good match. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I forewarn everybody that comes in to get, um, to become part of the team that this is work. This is on the ground, like front lines work, you know. So we ran, um, when COVID hit, I, uh, everyone went into quarantine and all of our elders after the second week couldn't go out to the stores. Some of them had no transportation. Some of them don't have any family. So they couldn't get to the stores. And so I just said, I'm going to do it and I'm going to start pushing food. And so that's what I did out of my truck. And I found more people on the front lines who were doing it. Um, people from Kazan, Commune, people that had tons of access to, to food boxes. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the best. It was the USDA Trump boxes, and those were helpful. But if we want to keep our people alive, long, you know, elders, they were filled with preservatives, higher salt, higher sugar, mm -hmm. basically the same stuff we get as commodity back on the reservation. Not Nothing else different, but we pushed those out. And then as, by the time, like, uh, spring came, we were able to partner with farms. We had these conversations with a lot of local farms. And we decided to um, to start growing our own food, and then start investing in these um, far these farms and buy shares, CSA shares. So now our elders get literally homegrown um, produce, um, wow. every food share. So if I'm not picking up CSA, I'm literally running programs. I'm doing speaking engagements like this. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, building uh, partnerships with organizations. I'm um, doing, you know, um, I was at Heatherwood Elementary in Boulder working with second graders. Um, we're telling you about the event at Sinem Farm. Um, we have a youth event and I help kids connect to seeds and to the natural world. So that's what I do, that's my job. I prefer to work with youth because youth are so much easier to work with. They get it before they're brainwashed, you know, and becoming adults. Adults, you know, when we're talking to seeds and we're helping kids and youth see the natural world as beings, hmm. and it's easier for them to do that. Yes. When you become an adult, it's separated. And so even everything in this room, when we're talking about the transformation of energy, Everything comes from the earth. It doesn't matter with what, how the energy is manipulated. But everything here, as long as it's holding energy, it's still alive. Mm -hmm. So people have, they don't understand, you know, that separation. Um, and really instilling the, uh, the respect and the familiarity at a young age. You know, the love for the natural world. And the people who do this type of work in, envir in the environmental justice realm is because they had something happen to them in their childhood to really start um, continuing that. And wow. so for me, um, community elders are our first priority. So if anything happens to our elders, we've lost a lot of elders during COVID mm -hmm. here and back home on the reservation. And so um, I just became almost insensitive and desensitized because we were losing elders every week and I couldn't mourn. Oh my goodness. So, um, so it's been really difficult. Um, and so how do you, how do you keep functioning? You know, cause this type of work in social justice and environmental justice, transformative education, human rights, 
um, it's very draining sometimes. Yes. And so we have to have self-care. So whatever happens, I, um, I try and, you know, really practice my self-care. Um, but we have anything, you know, anything from picking up donations. We get 2,000 dogs, um, 2,000 pounds of dog food a week. We push that out. We're pushing it out. We pushed out PP to Northern Arapaho, Pine Ridge, Black Mesa, Hopi, Pawnee. Um, so we're actively doing as much as we can. And uh, the rest of the time I'm writing emails, responding, we're writing grants. 90% of our grants now are being funded. We just got a huge grant from Colorado Health Foundation for 500000 for a permanent team. Wow, good. And so that's going to happen in January. So half of my VISTAs are going to transfer and come on to the permanent team. Good. And, um, and so... So that this type of work is sometimes draining, and sometimes it's draining and fulfilling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we're making miracles happen, um, but but yeah, it's 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 a lot of work. I mean, I just I think I've accepted the life that I have um, to serve my community, and I don't say that you know the titles don't mean anything. Mm. It's we roll up our sleeves and we get what needs to be done. We get it done. What a gift. So you mentioned in our conversations preparing for this interview um, about how there are red flags being raised in Commerce City around pollution. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. If you could give us some context about that, that's very close to Denver. Um, and, And as a theme kind of of this season is everyone and everything is connected. Right. Um, so, so tell us in some ways how we're connected, if you will, to the pollution in Commerce City. So it's my understanding, and I've been doing this type of environmental justice work. I was born into this with our own stuff happening on Black Mesa at Hopi and Navajo with coal strip mining. And then in Shiprock, New Mexico, there was a uranium, uranium mill for four decades. Um, that impact is still impacting our people. And you have literally, you know, if there's utility companies, they somehow have to get their power. Um, whether it's, uh, now it's solar and, and wind, but there's still detrimental effects to deeper earth mineral mining. With Suncor, a lot of the oil that comes into Suncor, including tar sands um, oil, um, this uh, oil refinery has produced... Um, and I have an article here that I'm going to read you, but uh, the the river that's um, that they're dumping a lot of the you know the chemicals into has um, a lot of its off-gassing, um, primarily benzene. Hmm. Um, I've every time I go down there, we've had a couple of events um, to call out Suncor. If you're there, like within an hour, you get a headache. And I kid you not, it's like the worst headache. And then when you leave, it leaves about an hour later. And so we know that people that are in that area, especially called the Tier 1 area, which is a two-area, two-mile area radius, um, are impacted, that have been impacted, especially the families that have been and lived there for decades. So a lot of people have health disparities, respiratory, um, black lung. And a lot of this is in the soil. It's in the water. Um, and in the dust. 
so it's circulating and so we know that people are very sick so um but there is a chance that we may be able to shut down Suncor as of as early as next year there's a bunch of organizations that are collaborating to do that hmm. um so we're hoping that that will help um Cotavando, so one of my community sisters, Olga Gonzalez, they got two grants um, from the SEP um, grant application uh, to install air monitoring, air monitoring equipment and to track that over so many years. And um, the, the article, I'll read it here in a minute, but so the for us, what we wanted to do is we created this um, project with a mycelium strain that uh, can heal anxiety and PTSD and some forms of cancer. So if we went in and started doing these inoculations in the soil, it takes time to start restoring the soil, but it also needs water, so mm. moisture to survive. Mm -hmm. So um, we had initially put in an application to do that too, but we're still going, we're moving forward. We've already started the inoculations around outside um, the area, but we want to build mother patches first. So you have to have a mother patch before you can start taking from those mother patches and they need a year to start building. So we're installing at least a, do a dozen mother patches and then we'll start taking from those and um, start installing them around the, the Suncor um, neighborhoods. So, um, but this addresses uh, bioremediation, ecological restoration, and microremediation. So it really helps the trees. It helps filter water. And if you remember in the 80s, Exxon, um, the oil spill ExxonMobil, mm -hmm. um, they used mycelium, different strains of mycelium to eat the oil. So, and I know there's a strain that they just created that they had just announced that eats plastic. So, which is really cool, but um, it's, it's, in, it's, it's interesting how they're engineering these different mycelium uh, strains to do that. But this is one strain that is a super strain that really will clean up the soil in a short amount of time. And we're also learning about other things like black locust and honey locust trees that will, the seeds will also, um, the roots will also clean soil, even uranium disturbed soil. Wow. So, so this is something that we're we're trying to launch. Um, if Suncor is shut down, then we're gonna just go in and start doing all these installations and showing youth how to grow mushrooms as food. So we have mycelium building kits that we're launching too. So we have a train and trainer circle that's already started, and in a month's time, they'll be ready to start going into schools, teaching folks how to build these mycelium kits for food. Um, this mycelium strain and many other mycelium strains help create new stem cells in your body too. So it addresses all the um, different kind of health disparities as well too. Um, but let me read that article. Absolutely, might, please okay. do. And this was actually by um, Olga Gonzalez. I don't know if, if anyone has heard of Olga. Have you heard of Olga? She's, she's a longtime sister of mine. She's really amazing. Um, so Denver Post editorial we, um, recently congratulated the Suncor Corporation for planning to introduce air monitoring equipment into the community surrounding the, the refinery it is owned for 19 years. Cotevando, a community-based nonprofit organization dedicated to helping the Latino community develop a stronger sense of its civic importance and cohesiveness, 
has a better proposal. It was developed over the past year with the help of several other grassroots organizations with expertise in public health, engineering, environmental science, and public policy. As background, Suncourt is the second largest corporation in Canada. Its primary business is mining tar sands for oil and gas with significant amounts transported 1,200 miles from, for refining in Denver. Suncor's community involvement initiative is not simply goodwill. It's part of a settlement agreement negotiated with the state after a $9 million fine in 2019 for repeated violations of its two air pollution permits. Hmm. Both permits expired, one over a decade ago. The state returned $5 million of the $9 million to Suncor with the understanding the refinery would perform community outreach and other corrective actions. The refinery emitted about 900,000 tons of pollutants in 2019. Once the state announced last year that 2.6 million of the 9 million fine would be made available for community-directed environmental efforts, Cultivando developed a comp comprehensive proposal to monitor Suncor pollutants and assess their likely health and environmental impacts. The proposal focuses on residents living near the refinery, 75% of whom are Latino, but it will benefit the whole metro area. The proposal supports two state-of-the-art monitoring stations to measure pollutants from the refinery. One station will be a permanent fence line monitor, and the other will be mobile to measure pollutants from different locations within the community. Information will appear Im immediately through a project website. Computer-generated maps will show the likely reach of these pollutants on the metro population. Wow. Continuous monitoring of pollutants has never taken place before in the refinery's 90-year history. Independent, verifiable air monitoring would be another first. Currently, Suncor self-regulates. It monitors intermittently. These are then aggregated to estimate its actual pollution. It's been said that the self-regulation has about the same relation to regulation as self-importance does to importance. Why is <laughs> continuous monitoring critical? The most recent science indicates it not averages but spikes in pollutants such as benzene that have the greatest impacts on public health. Suncorsoft reported two tons of benzene releases in 2019. Wow. EPA modeling suggests it could be maybe 70 times greater. The World Health Organization says there is no safe level of benzene human exposure. Our proposal will capture all releases as they occur. Hydrogen cyanide will also be continuously monitored. It's the poison gas Nazis use in the extermination camps. Suncor's emissions of this poison have increased significantly in recent years. The refinery requested a limit of almost 20 hydrogen cyanide tons annually, creating a firestorm of opposition from proximate residents who, as the Post and the other media have reported, often feel isolated and ignored. Many political leaders also objected, including Congresswoman Diane DeGette, who introduced legislation to put strict limits on hydrogen cyanide emissions from refineries. Our proposal will measure as many as 50 different pollutants on a continuous basis, including radioactive poison, which, now, which new studies show can be carried long distances by particulates. Suncor reports emitting about 50 tons of particulates annually. Our purpose is not to simply notify people when Suncor may be poisoning them, but to stop it. To do that, we must first have an accurate measure of the problem. Our proposal is, if funded, 
will do that. Um, this in turn should result in the broad and open civic discussion of Suncor's future and what corrections are needed for Suncor to remain a member of our community. So this is from Olga, but wow. they, they got the grants. That's amazing. So they're going to start it. They've already started working on it. So, yeah. So isn't that scary, though? That is. Cyanide, you know? Yeah, and, and I guess, and, and we can talk about this later, but people have a right to know mm-hmm. when, um, when their health and their lives are in jeopardy. Right. I'm Broderick Greer, host of Mile High Theology, and I'm joined by elder and activist Shannon Francis. So Shannon, one of the things that you also mentioned that I'm really intrigued by is the Second Mesa water ceremony um, and the challenges that this ceremony is facing due to the climate crisis and how land operates sort of in a sacred indigenous imagination. If you could say more about Second Second Mesa. Well, I come from uh, Third Mesa. There's uh, four, four mesas with 12 villages on each. And First Mesa and Second Mesa have been impacted by a depleting aquifer that hasn't recharged. Um, it's an old spring. It also comes from a million year old glacier. Um, and this underground spring was tapped illegally by Peabody Energy, who had been mining for over four decades before it was known as Western Coal Company. Wow. And so that how that happened, there's a whole design that was implemented preceding the coal extraction, coal extraction and strip mining, um, but literally was mining on Black Mesa 24-7 for four decades. And um, how they and the reason why they were using coal slurring is because this water is the softest and sweetest water on earth, and they know that the soft water does not corrode the pipes. Hmm. So they had used they had literally probably slurried um, over two hundred billion gallons of water, and how much of that they were uh, using per day. So, um, but they illegally tapped into aquifer C and aquifer N, and uh, this also affected a 1,000-year-old water ceremony during summer solstice in the um, the village of Mitsangnovi. Um, There's Tsangwapavi and Mitsangnovi on first on second mesa, Wapi, Hano, and Tewa on first mesa. So, and those are very old and well-known villages, but this, this spring uh, has not recharged. They have to refill it every summer in, o- in order to hold the ceremony. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's, it, when, it, when it went dry, it impacted our people so much that it was... Um, it was very horrific, and it was shocking hmm. because the water just stopped. And in order for them to have to hold the water ceremony, they have to refill it with a huge tank. 
Mm-hmm. And so, um, but normally I mean, when something like that happens, um, now mm-hmm. the, the villages have to import their water. Mm. So they can't, if they drink the water from the tap, it's very poisonous. If they have to shower in it, of course, you're, you know, you have to use that. Same thing with, with shiprock too. So uh, it's uranium um, mill and that stuff is still in the water. It's in the soil. It's blowing all around. It created a whole microclimate zone. Same thing with um, Black Mesa where Peabody Energy was um, strip mining for that coal. They had a perk, basically, that they would give people a truckload of coal in a voucher. People would take that coal and burn it back in the village, and then you have black lung, rising wow. respiratory diseases. So, um, And the silt from the blasting in the areas where the mining was happening was killing livestock. Because if you drink that, the, that's not good for anyone. So you had um, the destruction of medicinal plants, like not just a little, but like I'd say 30% of Black Mesa has already been mined and destroyed. And then the remediation process is to plant grass seed, like, you know, GMO grass seed. So, um, and they would not, um, they talked about green energy, like going solar, Mm -hmm. alternative energy. But for Navajo Nation, it created so many jobs for Navajo people Mm -hmm. and Hopi people. So this the whole coal, the coal mining yeah the coal mining jobs. company was creating jobs and so they shut down. So my uncle Vernon Messias was spent twenty five years trying to shut down the first mine and he was successful. It was a lot of hardship for him and his family because he spent all of his time doing that. So he was able to shut down Black Mesa mine, and then Kayanta mine was recently shut down in the last two years, and now they're going after the NGS power station near Shiprock, and I believe that one's shutting down too. So it's a big win. Um, Alternative energy in the form of solar and wind is somewhat ideal because when you have solar panels and the same thing with our cell phones and our laptops, that's still deeper earth mineral mining. Mm -hmm. So we think we're getting cleaner energy and we're going cleaner, but the exposure of that radioactive, those minerals, is off-gassing and toxic to humans. So, and the batteries, some of them will never, you know, once they go dead, they're not um, rechargeable and they're not biodegradable. So they're forever above ground. So, um, So when you think about it, this has been happening since I was literally born into this and heard it my entire life as a teen and my families, it caused stress. It was like you get harassed, like the Hopi people um, were harassing the Navajo people. Um, it was a lot of um, sadness, divisiveness, historic mm. resentment was created. And the Hopi, um, the Hopi tribe did away with the only newspaper called the Duvani, which was the only communication system between Navajo and Hopi. Wow. So now there's no communication and the divisiveness is even worse than before because there's no communication and you have intermarital like clans on both sides mm-hmm. of the fence that want to like reconcile and want to see their families. But Navajos, if you go into the Hopi village, the net people are chased out. Like they used to have people selling wood. 
and they're literally chased out by the Hopi people. So it's caused so much, you know, um, resentment that um, even though that the minds are gone, it's like, how do we still, how do we reconcile? How do we start working together? Because mm. before the government got involved, before the BIA, our peoples were trading. They were living and existing, you know, um, a lot better. And so now we have this whole mess that, you know, who's going to clean it up to now? Exactly. Because you have sediment ponds. Um, but this water ceremony is the biggest thing that has hurt so many people, you know, because we depend on our spiritual relationship with with water because water is life. And we're not seeing that just as Black Mesa, but like Standing Rock. Everything mm -hmm. is, is focused around water. We have mining companies that have to, have to have water to clean up, you know, um, fracking, the, mm -hmm. chemicals, injecting chemicals into the soil. There's no remediation for thousands of years for any of that to happen, um, wow. especially when you're uh, Newmont Mining Corporation um, with, uh, in Nevada. So there's a whole, um, a whole uh, project to mine gold. And that was, um, I don't know how many decades they were trying to do that, but they had to um, kill a bunch of horses in order to get rid of um, the horses on the land, wild horses. And so Mary and Carrie Dan were sisters that were fighting that for so long. And, um, and I'm also on the leadership for Colorado American Indian Movement. And so when the shareholders would have their shareholders meeting for Newmont, we would protest you know, wow. and we would disrupt and hold them accountable. So that's just one of many examples, you know, um, in, on indigenous territories and lands that this affects, you know, even though it's not highly populated, that mm. we're the first to be targeted. Exactly. Um, but this, you know, the whole design, I think I was uh, mentioning earlier in the 1850s, how uh, everything, geolo uh, geologists were surveying the land. Mm -hmm and basically knew where the natural resources and minerals were and then put indigenous peoples on the land because they knew that at some time it was going to be marketable and profitable and then removing the indigenous peoples once you know it was time to start mining. So, um, and that goes for the territories here in Denver too. So a lot of this ter these territories were stolen and occupied and there weren't supposed to be any white folks on these lands and as soon as gold the gold rush hit everything was thrown out of the, out of the window hmm. so um and we're dealing with that with that now in a land back you know asking and demanding land um we're doing stuff like renaming mount evans you know um re renaming s mountain um csu hughes land back so there's these initiatives that we're going to be the, doing the truth telling. And we have wow. historians and researchers working on that right now and do a, a whole, you know, truth and reconciliation. But we're doing a whole account of everything that was taken from indigenous peoples from this area, from the Buffalo Robe campaign to the gold, to indigenous plants, to everything that was taken from us. And, and, and putting a dollar amount on it and finding out what that dollar amount is. Well, and it, and it brings to mind to me, and we're, we're limited on our time, but it, it does two things come to mind for me that, you know, we're seeing this in the media of um, it's people who resist really truth-telling about history. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and my sense and, and the way that I was brought up is that if the truth is told, not you know, kind of from a whitewashed perspective, but from an indigenous perspective, from a black perspective, from an LGBTQ perspective, whatever. Mm-hmm. It can never just end with the truth being told. Mm-hmm. Then there has to be action taken mm-hmm. on truth being told. And right. that that is the resistance to truth-telling, mm-hmm. is, you know, there have to be amends made. Right. Um, and reparations paid. And right. that's where people get disinterested very quickly. Right. Nobody wants <laughs> to give up their, yeah, nobody wants to give up their property. Exactly. Like, you know, if we asked for this land, like this building that this is sitting on, it's like, do you think they're going to give it back? <laughs> exactly. Probably not. Um, the land was sold at $1.25 an acre back then. Wow. And all the Indian agents were, who were supposed to be protecting Native peoples didn't do that because it was all about self-interest and greed. Um, the late Russell Means, who was one of my mentors, and Professor Glenn Morris, um, I've known these both, you know, after Russell Means passed away, um, I've been part of the movement since I was 24, so I have some great mentors, Charlene Yellowwood, Vicki Anderson, Brenda Mitchell, Robert Cross, all of these elders, and, you know, they, they told us that if we want reconciliation and peace, we have to, there has to be, you know, um, justice. Mm-hmm. There, before justice, there has to be truth-telling. Before mm-hmm. truth-telling, you know, so it goes back to, if we're going to do this, it's like people have to be accountable because we can't move forward until, because um, as much as this is just continuing and continuing um, we don't have any legal recourse. And even in mm. our intellectual property, cultural appropriation of our knowledge. So it just goes back to like how much was taken from us, you know. But um, it's ridiculous that if I want to buy land, you know, this land was already given to our indigenous peoples um, who were displaced. And, and exactly. it is, it's ridiculous that I have to buy land back, you know, that was already given to us. So there was 29 tribes that um, lived in these areas, that passed through these areas, including my people that traded and bartered on the trade routes. Um, and my Dinette people like helped fight um, the Crow with the Cheyenne to get their land back. Wow. So we have historical allies and historical ties to these lands. And so, um, you know, it's, uh, it's something that it's probably going to take a little bit of time, but we're we're all working on that right now, and we're we're trying to do what we're supposed to be doing and keeping this native led because these are are still our territories. Exactly. So so yeah, and I know you're running out of time. And <laughs> no, I'm not at all. Talking on or not. <laughs> no, I love it. I mean, it is it's it is um, yeah, unceded territory. Yeah. I mean, it, which is just important for our listeners, for everyone in the room, for us all to know. I mean, it, it is yeah. unceded territory. Right. And then the second thing as we close that I really appreciate you making that connection for us on is the water ceremony. You know, we have a lot of people in our, in our culture more broadly who talk a lot about religious liberty mm-hmm. and the right of religious people to practice kind of um, in a um, in a safe and 
in a safe way, in an undeterred way, right. basically. That usually ends with Christians. We don't, you know, Christians don't tend to think about people who practice other religions, especially traditional religions. And it's so fascinating to me that one of the things that is most impactful in terms of the climate crisis is the infringement of religious liberty, especially in indigenous communities. If you're, if a community or a tribe has been having a water ceremony from a glacier that is a million years old, mm -hmm. and then because of the climate crisis are unable to practice that water ceremony and that ritual mm -hmm. on a regular annual basis, however regularly it happens, right. that is an infringement, infringement on religious liberty. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to also lift that up you know, from what you were discussing earlier. Yeah. Well, they didn't find out the the um, tapping into that uh, that aquifer illegally until later on and determined that's what it was. Wow. So, um, because the aquifer basically was about another 50, 50 to 60 miles away where the mining was happening. So, but they just saw these springs were drying up. There were dry beds. It never had been like that, you know, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And everything started drying up. And then, so they knew that, you know, what was happening was happening um, all around those areas. And it's ridiculous that Peabody Energy, the perks also was, there was a natural spring that was running 24-7. There was no valves on it. It was just running and people had to drive an hour to an hour half away to stand in line with their trucks and to get water if they needed water. And there was just like that just is running like nonstop. And wow. it's I don't know if it's still running today, but that was another waste of water, you know. And so um, all of these impacts of our you know, our vegetation, our medicines, um, a lot of that won't come back and what's ha what's happened now is a microclimate zone is it doesn't rain and doesn't snow as much anymore because exactly. of that mining has off-gassing and it's deterring the clouds. So it doesn't snow and rain as much anymore. Um, when it does, it's very extreme. So there's times where the roads aren't passable. They had to airlift elders out of there on Black Mason, Big Mountain because it was just extreme weather, you know. Um, but it's like, it's like that everywhere. Things mm -hmm. are shifting and we've seen it. You can't deny that global warming is happening. Um, it's here, you know. So it we is. were warned years ago that it was going to be here in like 10, 15 years. And that was 10, 15 years ago. And now they're saying, oh, 2030. And, you know, but it's here. It's we're here. We're living it. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, thank you for reminding us of that. Let's give Shannon a hand. Thank you. And, you know, I think this discussion in particular... What this brings to mind to me is when I'm actually meeting with um, couples who are preparing to get married, one of our sessions is always about the tension between memory and love. You know, so when we've been heartbroken in the past, betrayed in the past, um, it's difficult to have basically the wherewithal and the hope mm -hmm. to love in the present and by extension in the future. Yeah. 
Um, and I think what you've modeled for us and what a lot of our guests have modeled for us is that there is a way to hold memory mm-hmm. and with that memory, um, a connection to the soil, a connection to the land, um, a responsibility to the yep. soil and to the land, historic wrongs that have been done to a community, mm-hmm. but also showing that the force of love is stronger um, than all of those wrongs um, accumulated. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that model. Mile High Theology is a production of St. John's Cathedral, an Episcopal community in Denver, Colorado. I offer special thanks to our guest, elder and visionary Shannon Francis, our communications director and producer Evans Owsley, our communications associate Christina Rutland, our caterers at Cadoba, our hosts and partners, Redline Community, Redline Contemporary Arts Center, and you, our loyal listeners. This podcast was recorded on the land of Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. We give God great thanks for the 48 contemporary tribes that are historically tied to the lands that make up the contemporary state of Colorado. We will take a holiday break from the podcast in the month of December, and we'll be in touch with you very soon about our guest lineup for the spring of 2022. Please rate and review Malhai Theology on Apple Podcasts to enhance our digital visibility. Thank you. God bless you. See you soon.